Welcome to the Lingerie Lowdown podcast, where we ignite your passion for lingerie and empower you to feel fabulous. Are you ready to be inspired, delighted and informed? Well, you've come to the right place. We believe that style has no boundaries. Age, gender, body shape, size or ethnicity. Everyone deserves to look good and feel great. Get ready for a whirlwind of informative chats about lingerie and the brands we love. You can also find us on YouTube, Rumble, Instagram and Twitter or come join our website. Hi guys and welcome to Laundry Lowdown, the podcast series where I have more time, I'm going to say, with certain individuals where I get to ask questions all about them and find out more about them. For me, because when you're at an event and then a party, you literally have seconds. So I really appreciate you giving us your time more than anything else, sitting down with us in this beautiful location to have a one-on-one so I can delve into your mind. (laughs) <laughs> sounds, crack it open sounds good sounds good i mean i rarely do any interviews oh i got told that yeah so would you like to introduce yourself to everyone well my name is eric paradis i am the producer of the montreal fetish weekend i've been doing event production fetish event production for I think about 33 years mm, something like a that long time. yeah but it didn't just all start with the fetish weekend you didn't just start with the fetish weekend at day one and decided this is what i wanted to do it was a build-up well it's a it's a lifetime uh, build-up it's basically um starting as a musician doing concerts then producing concerts and doing all kinds of things that are in the entertainment field, but always uh, in the back of my mind, always being interested in the uh, the fetish world. Uh, Particularly, any reason why? Yeah. I think it's about... I find that the fetish world is a place where people can reveal their secret selves yeah. or their true selves. And I find that this is a... At least when I started, it was because it was a little bit more secretive. Uh, I find that it's an interesting place where there's, as soon as you enter, you're in an open dialogue. As soon as you enter, but back then, the fetish world is completely different to what it is now. Uh, yes, I, it was mostly by invitation. Uh, it was, um, at least in North America, it w- I wouldn't say it was like a secret society, but it was more underground. It was very underground. Was it forced underground, or is it just because no, it was too taboo even back then? Uh, it's a combination of different things. The people who ran and attended these events were very well off, and I think they valued their privacy beyond and above all and uh, they wanted to meet new people but there had to be a certain layer or layers of protection so 
It was not because it was too taboo. I think it was just because the times would not allow mm. people to, let's say, come out of the closet and say, I'm a cross-dresser or, you know, I'm a heavy rubberist. Yeah. So it was uh, the privacy, the families. It was really something different. Now it's very trendy and yeah. fashionable because it's in all the videos and it, in advertisements yeah and people have made full-on careers from it and yeah. gone all over because i found when i was going in and out of the fetish weekend filming i was very conscious of the fact there's not going to be people who want to be on camera you know it's still private for some people you know some people have a kink life and a private life and they're two different worlds to them whereas for me it's very much in the open sure um I would say when I entered the fetish scene, which was around 1989 or 1988, meaning attending international events, uh, namely dressing for pleasure uh, in uh, New York at the Slick Penta Hotel. What's that? <clears throat> it was a famous hotel in New York uh, across uh, Grand Central Station. If my memory serves right on... 33rd Street. Uh, what is it still there now? Oh, I'm sure it's still there. It might not be called the Penta Hotel. It might be called Hilton or some big brand name. But um, we were in, in, uh, invited by Mary Constance, who had a, <clears throat> a store in New Jersey. And um, I think it was called Constance Enterprises. And uh, she wa she and her partner, uh, John, who passed away, I think Mary Constance is still alive, and she probably has quite a few stories to tell. Uh, and I'm sure she'd be willing to tell a few of them. But <clears throat> these people went back to the era of the 60s when it was really taboo, where some of the things that we do now, we take it for granted that you can wear, you know, chaps with no you know back pant you know in a club but back then you'd get arrested and yeah it would be very troublesome a lot of uh, things changed between the late 40s 50s 60s there was a constant evolution but many were sacrificed to allow us to have the freedom to do what we do mm -hmm. now you get your account taken off Instagram if you show a little bit too much flesh or not enough flesh. <laughs> uh, it depends on who's on watch that day. But back then, your life would be taken away. I mean, you'd lose your job, you'd lose your friend, you might lose your spouse, your children. Uh, it was a little bit, uh, a little bit crazy, but some very interesting pioneers came along and, uh, Eventually, with the advance of the internet, it became somewhat more mainstream. Yeah, I think it's because it's in your face more now than it ever was, whereas before it was confined more to like a club. Actually, it was confined to magazines in print that you would go to maybe a sex shop with no windows and you'd find all these porn magazines. Yeah. But then out of the porn magazine, there'd be one, let's say, DDI, Domination Directory uh, International or 
you know, cross-dresser, register, or boots, you know, or leather, or whatever. And um, it, it's very interesting, because before you have the club events, before you have the gathering, you have somebody that probably takes a mortgage on their house and decides to do a limited run of printed magazines. It would be expensive mm. to do that. Not only would it be expensive, but it was illegal to put it in the mail because it was considered uh, pornographic material and you cannot send this by mail. So in the 1940s, the very first magazines that were printed in America, possibly over all over the world, except J Japan probably, but the first magazines were printed in Montreal. I cannot remember if it's Stanton, Stanton and Bill Brew or which uh, series of fanzines, but because it was illegal to ship it within the United States, they were printing it in Canada, and I think they were shipping it or taking it across the border. And that's a, rather innocently, that's how it started around 1946 with so a series of fanzines called, I think it was fetishists or something like that. I mean, my memory, uh, I've lost, I've lost this. But <laughs> it was very interesting. It was a fanzine and it was made with love and, you know, mm. it was distributed in New York under the cover and by mail uh, subscription. Then in New York, Irving Klopp, saw this and I think he was a partner with Betty Page back then so they started to do their own thing the fanzine was more drawings it was very crudely printed now Irving Kloss started to make movies and these were really under the table and under the counter so photography and movies this lasted for about 10 years then it went a little bit underground. Then there's a guy in England that was probably subscribing or receiving all this material, John Sutcliffe, who is very famous for two reasons, three reasons. The first reason is that he designed the clothing that Emma Peel wore in the Ave Avengers. Oh, yeah. So he was creating these fantasy costumes. The second thing, he started a magazine called Atomage. Atomage, yes, Atomage was a combination of, you know, rubber, fetish, hardcore, heavy costumes, hoods. He took basically what was being printed in Montreal and the photographic abilities of Irving Klein combined this. And this Atomage was the first true fetish magazine and it was published in the UK. Around 1972, they were doing parties called Atom Age, but they were very, very underground. It was, I mean, gay sex or whatever was highly uh, frowned upon. Mm -hmm. And there's a very famous court case in the UK, I think it's called the 12, where there was an arrest at one of John Sutcliffe's parties. And 
12 gay men were arrested and jailed for up to three years simply for being at a party. Wow. So these, I mean, John Sutcliffe really modernized the imagery in, in the UK and he was very talented. I think he lost everything <clears throat> because of that court case. I, I don't think he ever made, at least not under his real name, clothing. No, it's difficult, isn't it? Once you get into trouble or suffer in any way, it kind of frightens you a little bit. And you give up all hope as well because you feel like you're pushing forward and then you're getting nowhere at the same time without even realising you are actually getting somewhere. I don't think they were frightened. I would be. I think they were, from what I understand, one of the guys died in jail. So they, they were mistreated. So they, it was not even, it was a matter of life and death back then. It's like nowadays we've got it relatively easy. You know, yeah. I mean, a pinprick and the government is there with a band-aid to help us. But back then the government was literally throwing the book at anything that was, you know, uh, out of the norm. And uh, so basically they did that in, in England. And then what happened is there was a generation. So Mary Constance of Constance Enterprises, Mistress Antoinette of versatile fashion mm. in California, in Anaheim, California. They started to get local people to make latex cat suits. And all, all this time it was happening in Germany, but Germany was more of an enclosed community. I mean, very wealthy, lots of talented designers and ability to create really out, outer-worldly fashion. Mm. But when it came to America in the 70s and they started to do these mail-order stores and opening small physical stores that were, you know, very ordinary, like a little, in a little strip mall in California, it started something new so the magazine started to come out and <clears throat> there was something building so there was it was generating awareness and accessibility to clothing and community so it became more fashion it was not fashion it was just accessible but not fashionable back then not That's yet not yet so <laughs> so um when that happened, it bounced back to the UK. So the UK had a pause of 10 years between the court case of the 12 and around 1983. And in 1983, there is a group of crazy people, namely Tim Woodwards, who started Skin to Magazine, who started parties, a party called Skin to. Yeah. And they started a party. And back then, because of the punk era, the Vivienne Westwood in yeah. the seven, late 70s, then it started to become fashionable. So you would see somebody dressed up in a PVC skirt or yeah. it, it would not. I mean, is that the mods and rockers era? That's much, much later. The mods and rockers was in 1965, 64, 60, okay. 63. That was a. You were considered a rebel, weren't you, if you were part of any of those? So, mods and rockers, especially the, 
the mods mm. were considered very rebellious and they they were fighting they were really hardcore in the in the uk a whole generation it's been very well documented uh so that's one thing but when it it became the punk era people would not be duped they right away understood that the punk era was a, a fashion statement mm. to say you know we're different yeah and, and they were different back then. I mean, when I was looking at it as a, from a child, when it was still very, like, there, it was people with mohawks, sure. tattoos and, like, piercings. Yeah. and The tattoos were not that prominent. No, they weren't as... Piercings, yes. But they had tattoos, but they were more symbolic. Like, you were yeah. a part of a gang, you had this tattoo, yeah. or if you're a part of this punk crew had like something the punk was punk era was very fashionable and it was lovely from a musical point of view because it was going back to the primal you know rock and roll which was basically three chords and a a beat you know it was just a little bit faster but basically by doing this and the media jumping on the Mm. punk phenomenon it meant that People seeing other people dressed up in what appeared to be fetish clothing, but it was not fetish clothing. It was their normal clothing. It it became more acceptable. And then when Tim Woodward started Skin 2 magazine, he took it in, in a way where it was fashionable they had great photographers in in the uk they had great designers they had access to the material they started to do these small events it became a magazine the magazine was mm. published you know at irregular intervals but it 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 was spread all over the world so the magazines that were done in in America, were basically sex shop magazines. The magazines that were done in the UK, Tim Woodward, their fashion. Yeah. It was fashion <clears throat> trend. Yeah. Was it fashion? It was fetish fashion more than fashion fashion. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you listening. Do you like personal finance or real estate? Are you itching to build wealth and create a better life for yourself or your family? Then you need to come check out the Life, Money, and More podcast with real estate agent, YouTuber, and actor, Sage Weiss. This isn't your average finance show. We dive deep and do not sugarcoat topics around money and life. The Life, Money, and More podcast releases two episodes a week just for you because we're all about helping you win in this crazy world we live in. Come join the thousands of listeners on the Life, Money, and More podcast. It was difficult. It was different. Yeah. It was. It, but was, it was like <clears throat> latex, PVC, leather. Um, those are the three. It was. <clears throat> they were focusing more. Uh, Skin two was really focusing more on latex yeah. and leather. The reason why they did not go into PVC, and this is where there's a little bit of a, a caste system, because the punk had everything they'd done was leather and PVC or plastic. Oh. So they... Didn't want to, Tim, didn't want to associate with that? It's or? not that they didn't want to associate. It's that they wanted to create their own trends. So the designer, Marie and Vern in the UK... The, Marie and Vern. Yeah. Marie and Vern, yeah. You know, there's all... 
I think I've got a dress or a corset. Sure. They had, they had very high quality and they lasted the run. And there's other amazing photographers and models. And, and the designers were oftentimes modeling their own clothing. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really beautiful. So by the time that Skin 2 magazine was shipped in America, which I remember we started to see it around 1988, 87, probably it was the sixth sixth edition of the magazine. It was no longer sex shop. It was starting to be distributed in alternative fashion stores. Northbound Letter in mm. Toronto. Uh, in New York, I can't remember the name, but it will probably come back. But um, <laughs> it was very interesting to see, okay, the magazines are starting. And then America started to look at that. And the magazines, for instance, uh, David Jackson's DDI mm. became a little bit more aesthetics rather than just dominatrixes. You could start to see something that was taking shape. But mm. what happened is 1988, 1990, 1991, the internet arrives and there is no time to make the to go from a nice American magazine, it went straight to virtual. Ah. In the meantime, in Germany, you have a fellow named Peter Chernick, who is still very much active today. Now he's known for Marquee Magazine. That does ring a bell. Sure, Marquee Magazine is, is, is definitely... I mean, it's it's what kind of redid the fat. It became really fetish fashion. Skin too was a little bit more editorial oriented, yep. or photography like art oriented. Yeah. Marquee was more fetish latex. Uh, it was a little bit not porn, but a little bit more risque. And he did, I think, thirteen o. Magazine. So the first magazine was called O Magazine. And then for legal reasons, he had to change it to Marquis. And then Marquis was, had a very a fantastic run. But while this was happening, America was starting to do events, you know, but Print was still underground, a little bit sex shop, a little bit fashion store. The stuff, the good magazines were coming from the UK and Germany to America. And then at one point with the internet, the first people that mastered modeling, photography, and web design. So Marquis was not too much in web design. Tim Woodward's with Skin2, no web design, Constance Enterprise, nobody in America. But at one point, a couple came along and they literally exploded. Yeah. And it's Martin yeah. Perrault and Bianca Beauchamp. Yeah. And they created a website called, I think it was Latex, Bianca's Latex Layer, mm -hmm. <clears throat> before it was established as just BiancaBeauchamp.com. <clears throat> but they took everything and they glamorized the imagery the fetish imagery where now any young woman would say uh oh, they didn't understand the sexual ramification of fetishism 
They just wanted to be like Bianca. Mm. They wanted to be glamorous like her to the point where even the rock stars, you know, the, the again, Tracy Lords or whatever, they, they had their, their, you know, designers looking at what Martin and Bianca were doing. Lady Gaga copied literally photos that were done by Martin Perrault and Bianca when they were starting their career. I mean, I, there's other stalwarts of the fetish iconography singers, you know, uh, yeah. Dale Bozio, Missing Person, Madonna with the Jean-Paul Gaultier. Uh, yeah, the celebrities, when the celebrities jump on board on that, it kind of changes. Uh, I don't know how or, and I don't know why, but as soon as the celebrity jumps on board with the fetish or the latex, people start to see it as like, okay, again. It's just like, oh, someone that is really famous is now wearing latex. And latex is okay now. You know, it's, yeah. it's about, a, you know, it, it doesn't matter how long it's been around or how long you've been fighting to be seen. As soon as the celebrity wears it, it, it changes everything. It becomes trendy, yeah. but at the same time, it dilutes the sexual power of fetishism. So it, it becomes an image well, rather than forget, a lifestyle. Like, I've seen some crossovers, like some uh, BDSM stuff, uh, like collars and accessories cross over to mainstream, and then people start wearing it without even realizing sure. what it actually symbolizes. And then kids are wearing it, and you're just like, "Well, what, do, do you know what that means? That choker that you're wearing?" Well, and you just it fascinates me. But by the time you ask the question, "Do you know what it means?" Mm. It no longer means anything. No. So uh, that's the problem. So for for you know, true fetishists, it's fun to see your fetish on television yeah. or mainstream. Like you're taking the subway, and you see somebody wearing. High heels or whatever, something. Well, like stockings is a you know a very. Well, there's there's we're a, we're missing on stockings magazines, but it existed. So the very first fanzines that started in the, in 1946 that were printed in Montreal were a lot about stockings, and they were photographing the stockings and making it look like latex. They were, because of the print quality back then, you did not know if the stocking was fabric or something a little bit more outlandish that would connect the, you know, the cerebral dots yeah. into ah, you know, erection. I mean, in the broader sense yeah, of yeah. the word. But, um, it does. That's the whole point of fetishes. It's arousing. It's stimulating. It's, you know. Yes. It, it, it does something to your brain and, you know, it's fetish, really. It's erotica. Yeah. The erotica is a good, it's a good name. Um, so when you see all these cycles, it's, it's very interesting to see what, what it has become and how it, it evolved. And, you know, a very few, there is not that many people that remember. And where was you whilst all this was going on? Because you said you were in a band, is that correct? Yeah, in the early 80s. What band was you in? I was in a band called Scion. One, that's the main band. And How uh, long was you in a band? Uh, on in, uh, 12 years. <gasps> yeah, so it lasted from 83 till 1995 when I opened the uh, Fetish Café in Montreal, which was a, a, mm. <laughs> a strict fetish club which did not exist anywhere in the world except club doma but did you start the club 
Yes. 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 With my partners at the. Uh, but the time. before we get into the fetish cafe, the thing that I'm most interested in mm. is what instrument did you play? Bass guitar. Bass guitar. Yeah. Why bass? Uh, because it's easy. Uh, so is it though? If I Have don't... you seen the bass guitar? It's like massive. No, it appears to be massive, but <clears throat> to play it, you're just playing the rudimentary root of the music, <laughs> which gives you more time to interact with your audience and maybe, you know, catch the girl's uh, attention. attention so. <laughs> a rock star lifestyle. Yeah, a rock star. Did you live that? Uh, very briefly. What does briefly mean? Six months. months. Yeah, after six months of living, I mean, in my case, there was no drugs or no alcohol, but I was interested with the empowerment. Entertaining. It's entertaining. And, you know, people, instead of you being shy and going to people to say, I'm so-and-so, people were drawn to the musicians. Enjoying the podcast today? Before we continue, have you been searching for the perfect lingerie, hosiery or more? Look no further. Lingerie Lowdown is your impartial consumer champion with over eight years of experience in reviewing these intimate essentials. We've got you covered, or should we say uncovered, with over 10,000 full-length video reviews from over 750 brands, you'll find honest insights and discover hidden gems. Use promo code DIGEST10 when you join our website to get a 10% discount on your membership at www.lingerielowdown.com forward slash join. Let's get inspired together. Now back to today's podcast. Why do you think that is? Why are people like drawn to musicians? It's very easy. Everybody, everybody has a secret fantasy life in their head or in their heart. Guilty. And what? Guilty. Guilty. Me. Me. <laughs> okay. And um, very few are called to do it. The calling is not there. So it's kind of risk reward. And it's not necessarily quantifiable, but, uh, but it's there. So we tend to worship the iconography of who we see ourselves as yeah. or who we fantasize being. So we tend to put it on a pedestal and, uh, and do this. So if you're a fetish model or if you're a musician or a famous actor, I mean, some of these people are miserable in real life. I mean, uh, there's many documented cases of movie stars or musicians that, you know, are, are undergoing... Uh, treatment of some sort you know because they're they're unhappy but when you look at it from the outside it appears to be a glamorous yeah, life it's not though so it's hard i think it's i think being a rock star is, is it's hard because what you see on stage is not what goes on behind the scenes like there's they're constantly on the road they're constantly traveling you're constantly stuck with the, your, your bandmates which you might have arguments with at some point or not see eye yeah. to eye yeah, these are, it's years of transformation, mm -hmm. transformational time in one's life where you go from the age of 18 to, let's say, 25, if you're lucky to have a long, long career. For many, it's shorter than that. But you transition a lot because you see you're on the road 
playing in places, then your friends are going to get a normal job. They buy a car. You're taking the subway, you know. So, and then you're estranged from your friends yeah. because you're on the road and they start families. And, uh, you know, you come back home and all you have to show for is venereal diseases. So. <laughs> No, not good. No, exactly. It's <laughs> not not, not exactly good, but but it's a it's a part of growing up, and everybody is growing up. And you know, whenever you look at anything in the cycles of nature or cycles of humanity, there's there's motions that resemble the ebb and flow of the tides you know well you change as well like every seven years you change sure. as, as a person you can't remain the same person for the rest of your life you do change whether you you see it or not because of the things that you go through so you'll change from being like a little like a, a rock star then you went into the fetish world that was a big change yeah I, well when you started the fetish cafe so that change yeah that was uh that was the end of my career as a touring musician because i could no longer go on tour because mm. I had a club to run. How long did you have the club? About a year and a half. It was a very troubled time because we, I mean, there were no clubs in the world that was strictly fetish. Sure, you could go to Los Angeles and, you know, have a club that on Thursday, it's a fetish club, but the other nights it's a swingers club or something else. Yeah. We actually opened a place where seven days a week, with membership people could come in and then the formula of membership was too exclusive in my opinion so we decided to open it to the general public and it it started uh, i mean i won't go into details but this was the this was the time where everything started to bubble because bianca beauchamp were, was doing her um she met Martin around that time. Polymorph was starting to do latex in Montreal. And I was coming from New York, from Los Angeles. I had seen what was happening over there. Uh, even London. I was in London uh, at the Rubber Ball with uh, Tim Woodwards and David Jackson. I was very, very lucky because I was a kid. And they literally took me under their wing and they took me to all kinds of places, you know, to meet amazing people. I remember meeting Peter Chernick when he had just one magazine and he was with his then, then wife, uh, Annette Kellendonk. We met Jürgen Dietzel of mm. Schwarze Mode from Germany, who in Germany, everything was underground. Latex was, you know, hoods and you can't breathe. And this guy comes out with his then uh, girlfriend or wife and they start to do high-end fashion in latex, which was happening also in the UK. But the Germans were, they put the money behind it and they decided to turn it into a big business. So we're jumping back and forth. No, that's good. <clears throat> but... Basically, my career as a musician allowed me to have... Like, when you get taken under someone's wing, hmm. it gives you opportunities and insight into a world that... Because that, that's what happened to me. It's like someone took me under the wing and then all of a sudden you're exposed to something. You're like, wow. Yeah. 
what is this? I want more of it. How do I get more? What do I do? How do I, what are the rules? Are there rules? You know, there's a lot of intricacies that are involved, like being a fetishist. It's all right wanting it, but you, there are rules that you need to apply to or keep to. Mm, I'm not too sure if there's, there's... Maybe not back then. Maybe it was a free-for-all back then. It was... It was uh, it, 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 everything was move, moving in a very organic... It was a flow. I think it's timing as well. Everything's timed. Everything's at the right reason, at that right time, at that right moment. You were meant to meet all these people because you started something. You said with a group of people, you started a fetish calf and then you opened it up, but it was invite only. Then you made it general public. Yeah. You only had it for a year. A year and a half. <clears throat> it's a personal reason. My mother got sick and I decided to no quit the business completely so I could take care of her and yeah. take care of myself, dealing with my, my feelings, you know, facing a, a very, very difficult situation I had never faced uh, in my life. But I would say that the transition for me when I discovered the the best people in the world who were into the fetish, uh, the fetish world, when I discovered them, because I had already done a background as a touring musician, mm -hmm. I had done television, I had done radio interviews, so I, I, I was relatively able to stand out. And for me, when I discovered the fetish community, I did not necessarily want to go and get gratification from it. I was more interested in looking at how it was working, yeah. who was who, who was doing what, and how they were treating me. And the reason I say me, it's not in a selfish way, but what I noticed is when I was a musician, whenever I went anywhere, I was treated as a musician. What does that mean? It means that you have no money. It's, you know, no, no musician had any money. Is it kind of like when I say I'm a model, people are just like, what does, what does that's kind of like, a, it's not a job, basically. Exactly. It's not a job to be a musician. And the only time that I was treated as a person who could have a diversity of interests, be it politics, finance, you know, history, geography, uh, psychology, which were subjects that interested me from a very young age. The only time the doors opened to a variety of uh, a diversity of conversation outside of the music world was when I went to New York City in 88 or 89 and met all these people. So whether you were a lowly musician from Quebec mm. or you were a uh, you know, a judge mm. from Maryland. Uh, you yeah, know, once the fetish is turned on, I mean, the judge becomes a leashed dog and the rock musician becomes an object of desire for the mistress. And it was a very interesting dynamic. And then when the game is over, People have a nice meal and they talk and you discover their their interests and for you become normal, you know, in the fetish way because you're not about that job. You become somewhat equal in a weird. Sense everybody is equal. Yeah, yeah. And when the conversations start, then it's like it goes in in the movie goes from black and white to color, because it was never about the gratification of the fetishism. 
because I could get that as a musician. Mm. You know, all I had to do is ask for it and it, it will become reality. I don't know. I think there's a certain charisma that you have. Like when you talk to people, people listen to what you've got. I'm based on what I've seen. Mm. You know, you're very helpful. You're very kind. If anyone asks you, you know, you'll point them in the right direction. You're very easy to approach. So I think there's a certain truth in what you're saying. But if you are approachable, yeah. you're more likely to gain more value. Uh, yes. I, I, as part of a community, yeah. you have to do this. But if you're closed off, if you're like not approachable, even if it's as simple as just smiling to someone, because mm. I found that when I was uh, at the fetish weekend, there's a lot of people who are really shy. Sure. And it yeah. plucks up a lot of courage for them to go to someone to say, Hi, can I have a selfie? Which for some people is impossible to do. So I always make sure that I've got a smile, that I'm approachable mm. in some way. And I think you do exactly the same thing. It's, uh, I think 70% of the people are, I wouldn't say morbidly, but they're very shy. Mm. Then when they go to the fetish weekend, out of the 70%, maybe a third of that will enter a persona that becomes untouchable yeah. or more accessible so and and the other ones will float but it's very interesting to see this because they're using their fetishism as a tool to overcome their shyness and then to connect with other people yeah. so i remember when i was uh, in in new york city and got invited to private parties and uh I remember very well Mistress Mir from New Jersey. And it was like, gee, I could not believe the stuff I was seeing mm. because it was mm. it was so beautiful and unthinkable. Because at that point, all you had as a tes testimonial of what could be were some images from a magazine. Mm. Maybe you had... Uh, few movies that had been done yeah. like Barbette Schroeder's uh, Maîtresse with Bulogier and Gérard Depardieu in 76 that kind of started to hint but it was when you would arrive to a private event it would blow your head it was so amazing and the fact was that people would talk about the things that for a kid like me, it was impossible. Like somebody would say, oh, you know, Wilma Maria, come to my castle in Switzerland. What? A <laughs> castle in Switzerland? And I'm like, okay, we got to do this. Or Jürgen says, hey, you know, if you come to Germany, you know, ring me up. And I, I actually did it. And I went, I said, Jürgen, I've never driven in Europe in, or in Germany. And he, the guy actually drove down from Berlin to meet us in Munich to drive back to Berlin just so that it would be safe. Back then, uh, Germany was still... Uh, oh. Berlin was open, but East and West Germany were still separated. It was just a few months after they took down the Berlin Wall. But it, it was... I could not believe... Uh, the conversations that we had and actually the creativity. It was a world of, I don't think I've ever met 
somebody in the fetish scene who is unable to express creativity in one form or another. Transformation, mm -hmm. characterial transformation, photography, music, design, uh, and then all the other things of creativity, like gardening or you know, nature or it's that, it, To cooking. me, it's really weird when you, when you see someone in the fetish industry and you've only known their persona online, like when you see them on Instagram or whatever, yes. and then you start talking to them and it turns out, you know, you have a flower shop or something. You're yep. like, what? Whoa. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so surprising to see like that there's them and then their real life. It's like yeah. two different... I find that quite fascinating. Yeah, that's what, I think that's what did it for me. That's why I decided to open the Fetish Cafe with uh, Dirk and Sylvia. And uh, then, you know, Club Sin, which is, was a monthly event. And then... Did you do Club Sin? Sure. Yeah. Was that yeah. your, did you create it with the same people? No, Club Sin was something I did on my own. But one thing that people don't remember... Uh, when we opened the Fetish Cafe, so 1995, the second year in September of 1996, we did the first Fetish Weekend, but it was called Montreal Fetish Festival. Ah. So technically, the Fetish Weekend is going to be 27 or 28 years old, uh, you know, if I if I count uh, right. But it, yeah, it's going to be 28 years old. It started in 1996 and but it, was, it wasn't official official was oh it, it was official official? official official it was the same thing it was three nights and there were workshops so what's the difference between montreal fetish festival and montreal fetish weekend what's the difference <laughs> why did the montreal fetish weekend explode the way but not the festival um i think it's just time marketing strategies mm. why did you change the name from festival to because the world festival to me made me think too much about clowns. Oh, okay. And fetish weekend was it's it's a weekend and it's for fetish people, okay. fetish like-minded people. Yeah. The fetish weekend was not you don't need to be a genius to to come up with that. Basically, <laughs> the you had the rubber ball in London, which is one big night, 3000 people was huge in 1994. And then at the same time in New York City, you have an event called Dressing for Pleasure that's three nights in a hotel. It's just a, where, just yeah, in a hotel. Whereas the Fetish Weekend is all over Montreal. It's so, different clubs. I've never been to, whereas every party that I've gone to, like all the events that I go to in America, all I found is like they're all in, in a hotel. All everything's oh. at the hotel, the parties, the dinners, the the expos, the you know the workshops, all in one hotel. Whereas when Lucy and I came in 2019, we were kind of like blown away because it was just like all spread out through Montreal, and we're just like, how how have they done this? It's a it's an evolution. So basically, when you look at a city like Montreal, you come with. I mean, Montreal is a terrible city. It's not a wealthy city. And it only has one, it had 1.8 million people versus Berlin with 13 million or London 15 million back then. Mm. So <laughs> it was very depressed when you would start something like that. But you don't start it if there isn't a call for it though. There must have been a no, call. No, no. Like, did you say Club Sin? No, what? no. 
I disagree with that. Okay. What you need to do when you start something, if you go somewhere where there is a call, somebody already has your idea. Oh. Because people are, you know, people are smart, you know, and there's already this. What you need to do is you need to, when you have something inside of you that you're passionate about, you create the demand you create the need. It's like, I would say it's kind of like a drug, but you, the first taste would be free. And the very first fetish weekend, there was no market. There was no call. There was no demand. All we had was polymorph latex and we had Bianca and they were both very underground. So what we had, what I did is I said, ah, the first fetish weekend, how the hell am I going to get interesting mm. people? There's nobody dressed up in latex in Montreal. Polymorph was exporting to America. None, there's no money. There was no money here. So I said, okay, I'm going to go on a website from the UK called Rubber Pal. Rubber Pal. Rubber Pal. And I think it was .co. You, dot uk what's that equivalent to now is it something it like would be Fet a fet life, fet life yeah. with two thousand members oh. or three thousand members rubber latex and i went okay polymorph does latex martin and bianca are doing latex let's build on this Let, let's build this thing and how are we going to get interesting people to come to the first one mm. so i went on rubber pal one at a time i messaged people i said i would like to invite you for free to come to the montreal fetish weekend and the first one we did we had a hundred people coming from all over the world so whoever was silent or not but you obviously had a, a, a list of things and activities that would intrigue them to come. You didn't just get a bunch of people and then be like, well, we could have said, come, we're going to go for a picnic <laughs> and they would have done it. it the list, it, it's almost like the, so what was at the fetish weekend back then versus what the, what, what's the, how has the fetish weekend grown from the first ever one compared to what it is now? Did you have more events now? Have they changed? Sure. But back then, it was just a repeat of the formula we had done in 1996, which is a, a small event yeah. on the Friday, a bigger event on the Saturday in a bigger club, and a dinner perhaps on the Sunday or a play party on the Sunday or a dinner on the Thursday. So it was a very simple formula and workshops and a little, you know, a little uh, crafts fair or an expo during the afternoon so that's how that's how it started the very first welcome dinner that we had was a, a an initiative that bianca Beauchamp did mm -hmm. she organized a, a a welcome dinner at a place called saloon and 15 people showed up and then three four years later on the Thursday, we have 215 people showing up for the welcome dinner. Mm. And it's overwhelming. At that point, it overwhelms the restaurants. It overwhelms uh, everything that, that we do. And we, we see this grow. But the strategy was, there's, I mean, I won't go into details, but it would be a little bit boring. But basically, we took Bianca Bosha, 
we took a sex shop in Montreal. The guy in the sex shop entrusted me to be his uh, publicity agent. So I would do the publicity and inevitably I would promote Bianca and Polymorph and Martin Perrault's photography. Mm. So we ended up with a budget of a quarter of a million dollars over three years. And we actually took fetish photos of Bianca and put them in the subway system. And it created a ripple effect with the media. It had never been done, at least not in Montreal. Wow. It was extremely daring. People were complaining. We had to take them down, put them back up, do this, do that. But after that, it's it, the, the notoriety from those mm. campaigns, it opened up all the other medias and then it spread to print, print, uh, media and other types of campaigns. So we were entrusted by uh, the owner of Boutique Sexité back then with the uh, advertisement account. And I was doing, doing that. And on the other side, you had a small club called Café Cléopâtre with uh, uh, Johnny Zumbulakis. Is that? Yeah, we still, we still work with... Uh, Is that where I... Performed at exactly, yeah. exactly. And the guy looked at us and he decided to give us a chance. So he gave us a venue and he said it was illegal back then. You could not spank somebody in a club. Wow. We, the police was coming every month, every month. We had playstations. We had to take out the playstations <gasps> for three years because. And then it took time and time and advertisements and going on television. Bianca went on television. I went on television. We did fashion shows way back then. Like I, whenever somebody would ask me to be on television to talk about the fetish cafe or I say, I will not do it unless you have a fashion show. Mm -hmm. And we would put polymorph uh, latex and we, you know, I knew how to play the media from my musical career. So we always gave it uh, an, a sensibility so that people could, if they don't understand the fashion and their perception is distorted through what they've heard, at least we're going to give them something where you say, you know, people are doing something. It doesn't hurt anyone else. And most of these people are well-to-do, well-educated and approachable. And, you know, it took, it took years and years and years to flesh out the fetish weekend to the point where we can sell out a hotel or we, I mean, every year I pinch myself. I go, I can't believe what 300, 400 tourists coming for an event in a city like Montreal. That's completely at the the far northeast of a continent. It's not an accessible city. Mm. It's not a touristic destination. No, it really isn't. But it's become what it's become. I not be. I mean, sure, I worked very hard yeah. to project a certain image, but it's because Montrealers are very welcoming people. I mean, I'd like to say that the city officials are friendly but they're not so friendly. It goes in cycles. Every five years, you get somebody that's in a position of decision that says, okay, guys, you got your permits. You're going to do a, a street fetish fashion show. 
nobody's done that anywhere in the world. We did it. You know, I mean, it took six years to get the permits, but we do you still have the permits or do they, are they turned out? It's not that they're, they're turned out. It's just that we're now in a phase of, you know, righteous behavior where the, the city has politicized itself, where mm. they decide to put up front entities that are going to bring them votes rather than putting up front business people like me who bring, bring tourists yeah. and money for the restaurants and money for the hotel. Who needs money anymore? The government can print money and then they distribute the money, but they choose. You live, you die. <laughs> so they can look. It's so funny because how can anyone refuse an event that would bring... I think it's just the word fetish. I think people yeah, still... Look, it's the fact that it's got the word fetish associated with it. And I find anything associated with that fetish, people are kind of like on the fence with it. They don't know. Um, and they don't... Like at Bay Matthieu, the thing that you were doing the most was at a certain point, you're outside to make sure that no one's <laughs> disturbing or doing anything naughty outside sure. because you want to... You have to keep the peace. Sure. I mean... I'm not, uh, I don't think I'm very known to the mainstream, but some people do know me. Yeah. But whenever a venue entrusts us with renting their place, we have a relationship with them where they trust us. Yeah. And that trust is based on our ability to respect the neighborhood yeah. so whenever we did something i mean the fetish weekend if if we would have advertised that there's 70 dominatrixes coming in we would have sold 500 tickets to slaves but the image that we would have had would not yeah. be the correct image for for the i mean we would be pimps so Right. Yeah, it becomes more femdom then, doesn't it? Like I mean, there's nothing wrong with, no. with femdom or any type of thing like that. But, but if, it's not as inclusive as you think it is. It, you, have to, you feel like you have to be a certain character in order to participate. We have to produce an event, not just for the people who attend the event. We have to produce an event for the families that do not attend the event, that the restaurant owner that isn't sure the hotel manager that it, whenever we produce the fetish weekend we look at all the different communities and say what kind of footprint are we going to leave yeah. and we have to make sure that <clears throat> this type of of i, I want to leave something yeah you know i want to it's not a, not necessarily a statement but a precedent i mean if anything i maybe i'm not going to build the airport but I want to build the runway so that other people can land on, on, on the runway. And in order to do this, we have to be respectful of one and another in yeah. the community. We have to listen, but we have to be respectful for the people who don't give a shit about the fetish events. And not only do they not give a shit, they'd say, we'd rather not see it. Yeah. Okay, you've got a point. Can I take you out for dinner? Can I go and can we discuss this? Can you explain to me what are your, your, you know, your peeves, you know, when it comes to something like that? Can you help me refine the image? And it's, 
it's a never-ending cycle. So we went from having one of the most known figure on our posters with Bianca to having as much as we can the everyday attendees. Yeah. And I've been, what is it, derised or laughed at by some events saying, yeah, they don't have real models for their fashion show. Well, <laughs> what's a real model? Yeah. I mean, we're not doing uh, Yves Saint Laurent, you know? I mean, this is a, a mom and pop industry. So our models very often will reflect the people who design the clothing. So if the person who designed the clothing is in their 50s, why shouldn't she or he be in their fashion show? And so we, we need to, because this is what changes the perception of an event. If you have iconic imagery, and I love Bianca, but Bianca is a stunning model. Mm. Like you see her and she's amazing, but very few women in normal lives look like her right. or let alone has access to a fabulous latex wardrobe as she does. So by putting more normal people, by allowing photos of people dressed in a $40 PVC skirt, you're, we're going back to the punk era. We're giving it accessibility mm. from an iconography point of view. But in the end, Everything turns around dialogue. Everything turns around people talking with each other. Mm. And we're at a crossroad in society where before you in London, in Hyde Park, you have somebody that can go and on Sunday stands on a little box and addresses people. But now we're at an era of censorship where mm. the platform that we have to address each other is being taken away from yeah. us. So, I, scale. yes, and, and I understand that it goes in cycles. It goes in cycles, and the fetish was more open maybe uh, seven or eight years ago. Now we're at a cycle where if I go, I say we're going to do a street fashion show, they're going to say, hey, maybe not. Then I will say, well, don't your restaurants want 400 people eating twice per day for five days? I mean, that's $300,000 of food in an area of Montreal that really needs the money. Yeah. So... You know, I, I don't know uh, where this is going from just a pure financial point of view, the economic downfall of tourism, but from a societal point of view, that's a fight I'm willing to, to pursue, that I'm willing to go and be on television or talk about something that's going to be tough, you know, for some people that maybe people would look at me and think I'm an idiot or you know, whatever. I think they'll think that. But I, I'm willing to shake the cage a little bit. Rock the boat. Rock the boat a little bit, within reason. Yeah. But I think you've been rocking the boat. You and your little group of people, the, the what you started, how you started, where... 
Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Lingerie Lowdown podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the ride and are feeling inspired to embrace your unique style. Remember, we release new podcast episodes every Wednesday and Saturday. Don't miss out on the twice-weekly excitement that awaits you. So until next time, keep expressing your confidence and celebrating your beauty. This has been the Lingerie Lowdown podcast, your ultimate source for style, passion and empowerment from the world of intimates and more. You can find us on YouTube, Rumble, Instagram and Twitter or come join our website. Stay fabulous and we'll catch you soon.